0: Well, good morning, everybody. Um, I have to check the schedule. I think we're done with Samuel for a little while. As you can see, you look around, there's people missing in large numbers. So usually in the summer, we we set aside whatever large series we're doing, and we take up a few topical things. It just happens to be Ascension Sunday today. Uh, So this is one of those times where the church calendar chooses our topic for us. So we'll be talking about Jesus' ascent into heaven And what that has to do with you making toast in the morning. Because it does. Christ is in heaven, and so you can make the best toast in the world. If you have a Bible, we'll actually be uh, looking at Acts chapter 1. This is not just going to be a topical sermon. We're actually going to look at Luke's text in Acts about the actual ascent. Last year and the year before, actually two years in a row, it was... Such a profound topic. I talked about what happened when, when Christ got into heaven and what he was doing for a week before Pentecost. So if you want to reference that, that's on the, on the website, that sermon. Today what we're going to be doing is actually looking at the last thing he did before he left and the nature of his departing and what that means for us. So Acts chapter 1, we're going to be looking at verses 6 through 11. But before we do that, let us pray together. Father, we thank you so much uh, for Luke. Uh, We thank you, Lord, that he recorded the ascension for us, that um, we are able to meditate on it. This revelation is deep and profound, Lord, and it is uh, worthy of you to have your people read it, to memorize it, to consider it, to meditate upon it, Lord, and to understand what it is that you have accomplished and what it is you are accomplishing through us and how you're accomplishing it through us. We Pray that as we consider uh, the spirit, and the, the forgotten God this week and next week, that we would rely more upon him, that we would not quench him, Lord, but that we would, um, having received him, live accordingly. We pray all these things in the name of your son, and amen. Now, I, I read years ago, actually, in art, I was in an art history class, and there, and there was this atheist art history teacher I had, and she made a profound point that I thought was really important. She said, you can tell a lot about the different Christian traditions based on their symbol for Jesus. I thought, that's weird. At the time, I wasn't a Christian. I didn't really understand what she meant, but she went on to explain, you know, the Catholics worship a Jesus who's still being crucified, right? The crucifixion is still the symbol of Catholicism, and and that has led to a, a martyr-like, defeated, uh, ideology, essentially. And, and Protestants, once the Protestants started painting, they paint a lot about empty tombs. They print, and, and, and that tells you a lot of, about salvation and, and the fact that Jesus isn't dead. They, they believe that he is, he's not there hanging on a cross. He's alive. Now, I find that this is actually quite true. Christians, you can tell a lot about different Christian denominations by their symbol for Christ. And I think it's important to understand what the reformed symbol is. <laughs> we are for the most part a reformed church, and what is the symbol? What when we think of Christ, because we're not allowed to make pictures of him, what is the thing that we picture? Well, I want us to picture a glorious throne, the most glorious throne you've ever seen on the highest peak that you can imagine in all of the cosmos. And that Lord who is, yes, in fact, been crucified, who, who did, in fact, come back to life, didn't remain here. He is somewhere right now, doing something right now. And more importantly, he expects you to be doing something right now. That's why he went back. Right? As long as he was here, it was just him. It wasn't until he went back, right? it wasn't until the return of the king, in the truest sense, to heaven, that we were able to become the church and do what the church is supposed to do. Now, the ascension is a boundary and a transition. It brings Jesus' earthly existence to a close, and it marks the beginning of the Holy Spirit's coming as Jesus' ongoing presence on earth. That is why Luke, the only one who describes the ascension, no one else talks about it. But he both ends his gospel account with it and begins acts with it. And that's important. It's a transitional point. He includes it in both books. It's at the end of Luke, when, when, God, when Christ has returned, and the end of that period, it, it's the high-water mark of that period, and it's the beginning of an entirely new period. Uh, as, as Jared, years ago, helped me to understand, the book of Acts should not be called the Acts of the Apostles. It should be called the Acts of the Holy Spirit. That's what it's about. Luke wrote Volume 1, Volume 2, of the Spirit's work in human history. So first you have the Gospel of Luke, and the Spirit is empowering Jesus, and then you have the Book of Acts, where the Spirit is empowering the church. And the thing that's in the middle that hinges them is the ascension of Jesus Christ. The ascension completes the cyclical, U-shaped life of the incarnate Christ. The incarnation is meaningless if he didn't go back. It doesn't matter that we have an incarnate Lord if he didn't return. Right? It's a U-shaped ministry. He comes down so that he can go back. He descends so that he can ascend, okay? And this is what brings completeness and closure to his ministry. In John 6.62, Jesus speaks of the Son of Man ascending where he was before. It's important. I have to go back. I can't stay here with you. Ephesians 4.10 says, He who descended is he who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. Why did he go? So that he might fill all things, as long as he was still here, he couldn't fill anything. I mean, maybe a bucket of water. But he could not fill his people. He could not fill your heart and my heart. He could not fill the church. He could not fill the world until he went back to his throne and took up his lordship. He took up his crown. In the brief catalog of Christ's exulting events in the hymn that's recorded in 1 Timothy 3.14, it's actually a hymn that they used to sing in the first century church, the climactic event at the end, is that Christ was taken up in glory. Okay? He wasn't just taken up, he was taken up in glory. Why? Because this is the linchpin moment. This is the moment when he ascends, where everything that had been is now going to be remade. He did what he needed to do so that he could return to heaven, and from that point fill the earth with himself, with his kingdom, with his people. Our imagery, other imagery associated with Christ's ascension into heaven, reinforces this sense of exaltation. When Jesus ascended, for example, he took a position of honor at the right hand of God the Father. The ascended Christ is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in one to come, Ephesians 121. I'm going to read that again. It's one of those moments where I could just read this and we could be done, right? We can go home and just think about this far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. Biden, <laughs> Caesar, right? Henry V. There's a lot of great names. Churchill, nothing. Those names are nothing compared to this name. Those dominions are nothing compared to his dominion. His throne is the highest thing. Everything flows out of that, and, it, and, 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 and until he went back, it was vacant. Until he went back, there was nothing flowing from it. Oddly enough, I used to quote N.T. Wright all the time, and then for a short time I, when I would refer to N.T. Wright, I'd say, as one commentator says, but I've matured. I'm going back to just saying it's N.T. Wright. So as N.T. Wright says... The ascension is a central and vital feature without which all sorts of other things start to go demonstrably wrong. Where the ascension has been ignored or misunderstood, one can trace a slide into muddled and even dangerous ideas and practices. The ascension demands that we think differently about how the whole cosmos is, so to speak, put together, and that we also think differently about the church and about salvation. Now, I could talk about the fact that what happened? He gets on a cloud, right, and pushes uh, the penthouse button and just ascends. Right? So what N.T. What Wright is talking about is there's a great deal about the ascension, and, and I suppose I'm, I'm foreshadowing what next year's sermon is going to be about. But how, what is the structure of the cosmos where he can climb on a cloud and suddenly go up to heaven? I've said this before, if if he was physically going to heaven to a place at this point, at this rate, even if he was going about 45 miles an hour, he will have only just passed Pluto, right? I I mean, where did he go when he went? (laughs) Think about it. How did he get there? What was the, okay, we'll we'll come back to that next year. What I want to talk about the fact, that is, if you don't get the ascension right, you don't get Christianity right. That's the point. That's what N.T. Wright is saying. And where we have forgotten the ascension, we have forgotten Christianity. The last thing the Lord Jesus told his disciples before leaving is how to understand what was happening. Because the disciples were still struggling to understand Jesus' plans, they were still struggling to understand their, their role in those plans, and I would offer to you that we still do. We still want what they want the way they wanted it, how, how and when, we are still confused about what the plan is. We are right, why, why is post-millennialism, pre-millennialism, why are we still arguing about the eschaton? Because we don't get it. We do not get what the point was. We don't get what he's doing or how he's doing it. The disciples had aspirations for what Christ was going to do, but Jesus had a plan. He has always had a plan. And he was only beginning to reveal it. That's one of the important things here, right? There's a great deal that we have come to misunderstood that was revealed after this portion of Scripture. What we need to go back and, and, and sit here and realize what he's revealing, right? In the, in the moment of the story, he's, he's beginning to reveal something that had never been revealed before in such clarity, with such purpose. And we need to climb back into that story and go back, essentially, to, to the beginning of the church. And, and, and try to understand, after all these years of confusion, <laughs> all these years of uncertainty, what is he doing? How is he doing it? Why is he doing it this way? What is our place in this story? This scene sets the eschatological priorities and, in fact, the calendar. It sets the calendar. You want a calendar? Here's a calendar. Here's what I'm going to do, when I'm going to do it, and how I'm going to do it. It sets the mission and outlines, in fact, the book of Acts, putting forward the universal call of the whole church. And what is that? We are a commissioned army of conquest. That's what we are. Now, like the Huns, right? Like Jerry in World War II. Is that what we... Sorry, not Jerry. Lastly, Jerry the Germans, right? Is, that, is We're stormtroopers, right? We're building a Death Star in the storage room over here. Is that what I'm talking about? no. We are a commissioned army of conquest. Now, commissioning is something we don't really understand, but it is something they do in the military. There is a difference between commissioned officers and non-commissioned officers. You are all commissioned officers, all of you, man and woman, child and adult. Now, let us consider... This section now, now that I, we've opened it up in this fashion, let us now turn to Acts chapter 1. Let's consider how this section clarifies the Great Commission, because all authority on earth and in heaven is Christ's. Go, therefore, and make disciples of the nations, teaching them what Christ commands. That's, that's the Great Commission. Now, you, if you want to understand that better, let's look at Acts chapter 1, verses 4 through 6. 6. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And that's where we're going to begin is their question. Now? Now do we get a kingdom? Now do we get swords? Now do we get to stand on the throats of the Romans? Now? Right now, are we going to be liberated and create our own tax system? Now, are we going to have twelve justices who will vote the way we want? (laughs) Now, can we have both houses and the presidency? Is this this the time? Is this the time where we put Russia in its place at last? I don't know about you, but I've been waiting for like two generations for somebody to put Russia in its place. But that's right. And when I think of uh, uh, an army of conquest, that's immediately what I think of. Because I remember, I was a little boy, and my father would go on missions in the army, and you know who we went and fought? Commies. You know who we still seem to be fighting? Commies. And, and is that the army of conquest that we're on? Right? When, when are you going to give us this kingdom where we finally don't have to deal with commies? I, I understand their question. The, the disciples are very confused because they have very real national interests that are very important to them and raised to think of nothing else. And, and here he is, right? I mean, I, this was back during the Mark series. Can you imagine a commander who, who has already died and come back to life that you can't kill? That can keep an army marching all the time because he can just take one loaf of bread and feed 5,000 people? Now, if, if, this is where, if, if I were one of the disciples, this is what I would have, I'd be like, who's going to stop this guy? He can feed us with nothing. He never sleeps, right? He clearly uh, has the father's ear. And he can lead us now, and no one will be able to stop us. So, of course, this is the question they're going to ask. Is it now? now, are we going to get a national Israel? Now, are you, you're the David who's going to come and have your mighty men, and we're going to, to go on the march. The disciples asked Jesus when he would restore the kingdom to Israel because they concluded from his resurrection, they concluded from his statement about baptizing them, in the spirit that they had arrived at the end of human history because this is what Jews always believed. The resurrection happens at the end. Jesus was resurrected, and if you read Matthew very carefully, the tombs were opened, and all, all, the, all these dead people came out, so there was a general resurrection at his resurrection, and so clearly this must be the end of human history, no? They were still expecting the restoration of a military and political kingdom that would drive out the Roman armies and restore national sovereignty to Israel. Forget the fact that so many people in the world don't believe. Whatever. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about standing on the throats of our enemies. Central to Old Testament faith was the conviction that God would in the end fully restore his people to their inheritance in the land. Right? Who cares about the world? I just want my acre... Right? That's it. Just take me back where Joshua was, where the people were. and, and, and right? They want a little chunk of land. That's it. But Jesus is thinking of the whole world. And that's the difference between the way God thinks and the way man thinks. Right? Can't we just have Texas just that, free of commies? The disciples want to know the date on the calendar when Jeremiah and Hosea and Joel's prophecies will be fulfilled and they will get their little chunk of land back and they will not have to deal with all these unbelievers. Now, such a question is selfishly nationalistic, betrays an eagerness for the end of history and an ushering in of God's perfect reign, and I think part of the rise of Christian nationalism is seen in this. A desire to inaugurate a utopian Christian society where missions and outreach are unnecessary. You know what will happen? If Jesus came back now and we had a Christian society and it was theonomic, right, and everything was put in order, I would not ever, never again would I have to preach a sermon on outreach. And everyone would be like, yes, finally. No missions? Awesome. I can just raise my kid without having to worry about them playing with unbeliever kids. I could just go ahead and have a barbecue in my backyard and not have to worry about my unbelieving neighbors, right? I could leave my house unlocked. How often is our nationalistic Christian ideas simply about the fact that we don't want to put up with unbelievers? We don't want to put up with the world anymore. We're sick of it. How many Christians want Christian institutions and government because it honors God? Versus wanting them so that we don't have to deal with unbelievers anymore, delivered from the world entirely and yet in it. Because that's what we really want. If you look down in the very corner of your heart, what you would want... What you really want, right? When, when he says, be in the world but not of it, you're like, yeah, that's what I really want. I want this world, but I don't want it to be full of sin. And, and the disciples, that's what they wanted. And for most of us, that's what we want. Heaven, I can't imagine what that's like. But I can't imagine what this world would be like if I didn't have neck pain. I can imagine what this world would be like if I didn't have to have hip replacement surgery. I can imagine what this world would be like if I didn't have to deal with commies. And, and how often is that what we want? When are you going to, to make all the bad stuff stop? When are you going to make all the unbelief belief? When are you going to make all this work that you want me to do to stop? At what point do our personal interests and our post-millennial interests – where do our personal interests end and our post-millennial interests begin? because you can dress it up in all the post-millennial talk you want but really what you want is this world without sin so that you can enjoy it without sin at what point does one become the other now do we want Christ's victory in the hearts of everyone do we want peace do we want prosperity and power what is it that we want we want everyone to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ or do we want prosperity and power and peace What the disciples want is heaven on earth now. They want triumph without battle. They want wages without work. They want a place where they won't be bothered. And they don't have to do the toil of priests. They just want to be kings. Right? Priesthood. Priesthood? A nation of priests? No. I want to be a nation of kings. right? That's what they want. And I, and I, I really want you to stop and think, isn't that what you want? Don't you want to just be a nation of kings? So you can tell everybody what to do. Throughout Jesus' ministry, this is a motivation of the disciples. Luke records it many times. One example is Luke 19.11. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. Sorry, Phyllis. That is not how it's going to work. Okay? And I know that you guys live in the greatest nation that ever existed in all of human history, but no, the kingdom of heaven is not going to be fulfilled in your lifetime. Okay? I, I, there's a, not a lot that I'm certain about. I'm fairly certain that the end isn't going to come very soon. Right? They want to be a nation of angels. That's what they want. Can't we just live sinlessly and just worship all the time? Now, a common error of Christians, as we see with modern prognosticators who try to determine the time and date of Christ's second coming, their concerns have more to do with national and carnal interests than interests of God's glory. We want to know when Jesus will rescue us from this horrible place more often than we consider how he's going to change this place and thereby change us through the process of sanctification, through the process of conquest, through the process of being priests. The cessation of conflict without full victory is not his plan. Amid toil, we seek the toil to end in our flesh before the work is finished. But Jesus is the Savior of the world, not of Israel alone. Jesus is the Savior of the world, not of America alone. Jesus is the Savior of the world, and I'm sorry to say, not only of Western civilization. Psalm chapter 2, verse 8. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. That's what the Messiah is going to want. Okay, They want a Messiah, and what's the Messiah going to want? He's going to want to take possession. He's going to want all the nations as a heritage. He wants the whole world, and they're standing there, and they know that the whole world has not yet been conquered, and yet they want to know when the kingdom is going to come. And and this is what a lot of modern Christians are focused on. When is he going to just make it end? When do we get to get on that magic cloud elevator and hit the button for the penthouse and abandon this hellhole? The corners of the world are, by right, the Lord Jesus is. And he will not be satisfied with anything less. He will not rest until it's done. He will not stop flowing, right? The grace will not stop flowing until this is what he has, every corner of the globe. Is there a national emergency? We're all getting buzz at the same time. That's not terrifying. <laughs> Lost <the car>. Yes. <laughs> Speaking of national interests, the corners of the world are his. Okay, and and by right they're his. This is what it says in Philippians chapter two, verses eight through eleven. And being found in human form, the, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Is that what you want? Is that what you want? Because there's a whole lot of people out there who are not bending the knee. There are a whole lot of people who the name Lord Jesus is not on their lips except for as a curse. Now, how often is what you really want in the kingdom, what you really want in Christendom, something other than this? By upholding those promises, oh, I'm sorry, go back, throughout Judea and Samaria and the world, it says. That's where they are going to be witnesses. I just have this little plan, guys. I'm going to go in a minute, but I just have this plan. I want to tell you. First, I want you to start in Jerusalem, okay? Good. Samaria is next. Oh, and then the world. And they're like, what? <laughs> what? <laughs> what? I, I, th- I thought that's what we are going to do now. Oh, you want, me, you want me to engage in something now that's going to take a thousand generations to accomplish? Okay, well, that's different than what we thought. Oh, is it? <laughs> it's, it's different than what they thought. Is it possible it's different than what we think? Right? Is it at all possible that we could still be just as confused as the disciples were? <laughs> Don't answer that question. It's rhetorical. The promise to the Messiah is the source of the church's power. He, he wants, he's asking the Father for the nations as a heritage. He's asking for the earth as a possession. And so what he's going to do is do that. That promise to him that the Father has made is the mission of the church. This powerful new work of the Holy Spirit after Pentecost brings about several realities to every Christian, man, woman, and child, as it says in Ezekiel 36. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Did you hear that? The conquest of the world begins with your heart. The conquest of the world begins with what you are doing and not doing. Are, Are you yet fully obedient to the Lord Jesus? Well, then we have some work to do, it seems. And if you, the believers who are sitting here singing songs and offering prayers and repenting of your sins, if you yourselves are not yet fully his, it seems to me that perhaps maybe we have some work to do. right? Because, again, we always think it's out there somewhere. If somebody would just help us so we could take over Congress, how about you help yourself take over your own heart? How about you help yourself take over your own life? Because sitting to your left and right are what? Sinners and sufferers. Because those who sin suffer from it, and those who sin cause other people to suffer. And and until we can deal with that, what are we even talking about? How about the kingdom of Christ comes right in our own hearts first, and and we obey him first? His promise is that he will engage in this process with us. He will change us. And it doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen in a flash. You don't go from total unbelief and nothing but darkness and nothing but sin to complete purity and perfection in an instant. It takes your lifetime, and then you're still not done. And so do you think the world is suddenly going to be transformed in a generation? By upholding those promises, Jesus turns them into a command. He's commanding them to do something. Be filled, go forth, do my will. Be filled with the Spirit, have a heart after God, and God's heart is for the whole world. Now, here, let me, uh, let me, let me challenge your theology for just a moment. You good little Reformed people, I love you. I'm with you on this one. I'm sitting right next to you while you're hearing this. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 through 6. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there was one God, and there was one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Now, is that what you want with the coming of Christ. Is that what you want when you think about the kingdom? Is that what you want when you think about the church and what the church is doing? That all people would be saved? Christ bridles their curiosity and ours. He reminds us of the glorious things that He has revealed. He points us in the direction that we ought to go and says, Go. His commandments tell us how we ought to occupy ourselves, how we ought to employ ourselves in his service. Therefore, he commands his disciples to wait for the fulfillment of the promise that he would send his spirit, and to be diligent in executing the office that receiving such promise necessitates. You can't get the Holy Spirit and remain as you were. You can't get the Holy Spirit, and then he starts to go to work on you, and you think, what in the world is this? (laughs) Because where he is, the spirit of the world cannot be. And, and the more that you eat at this table, the more the delicacies of the world taste bad. And you want to spit them out, and you want to get rid of them. And we shouldn't be shocked by that. We should help one another along in that process. Jesus says to be witnesses. Witnesses. To be a witness is to speak from personal knowledge of facts as well as their significance, The apostles as eyewitnesses of his life and death and resurrection were witnesses in a very special way, but those who benefit from the work of Christ become witnesses de facto because they are filled with the Holy Spirit. As it says in John 15, but when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, there's the promise, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me and you also will bear witness because you have seen me, uh, you have been with me from the beginning. Acts chapter 5, verse 32, and we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. You are his witnesses. If you aren't going to go out and testify who is, what else do you have going on that's more important than that? And I'm not just talking about, okay, well, now what we're going to do is we're all going to get our Van Til out, and we're going to get our apologetics books, and we're going to go and be witnesses. Is that what I mean? No. How about you sit down with your spouse, and you repent of some sin, and you receive forgiveness from them, and you witness to them the power of the gospel? How about you sit down with a neighbor, and you love them simply because they're made in the image of God? The witnesses who testify to the saving death of Jesus may seal that testimony with their own death. This is what we go on. This is what, I, I, I could not believe this. But do you know what the Greek word for witness is? I did not know this. It's martyr. That's where we get the word. Why? Well, because there's witnesses and there's witnesses. Right? There's witnesses and there's witnesses. How, how do those people have have you heard stories of the martyrs? How do they have the power to do what they do? How are they there being burned and, and the hand that had signed the document stating that they didn't really believe? And they repented of that sin. There's, there's these martyrs. Have you heard of these guys? And they had signed, oh, I don't really believe in Jesus. And then they recanted of their recanting, I suppose. And then they end up dying for it. And, the, and, and as they're burning, the first thing they do is they have the, the wherewithal to stick the hand that offended God into the fire first. Now, there's witnesses and there's witnesses. But what I, want to say, what, what I want you, respectable middle-class Americans, to understand here is that this is, right, dying to yourself is the whole concept. Somebody who's willing to die because, because Jesus is who he says he is. He is doing what he is doing, right? We're going to witness to this fact, and what I'm going to do is give up myself, what I'm going to do is turn away from my will. What I'm going to do is turn away from my plans. What I'm going to do is I'm going to martyr myself every single day. Now, now that's a church doing something. That's a church that's going somewhere. And that place is heaven. Philippians chapter 2, verse 8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And it's no wonder that he says then, okay, take up your cross, take up your martyrdom every day and follow me. (laughs) I love that part in Acts where they beat the apostles. And the apostles come out and they're like, yay, we suffered for Jesus. And they tell us to put masks on and we light our hair on fire. There's witnesses and there's witnesses. What are you? <clears throat> the essential resource to witnessing as a Christian is the Holy Spirit. That's why he sends the Holy Spirit, because that's what you need. If you're going to be a witness, that's what you need. Okay, You don't need a degree. You don't need to speak Greek. You don't need to memorize Van You need the Spirit of God. Now, do you have that? then you're a witness. If you have him, you're a witness. <clears throat> One commentator stated it succinctly. This commission lays an obligation on all Christians. The Christian church, according to Acts, is a missionary church that responds obediently to Jesus' commission. You are commissioned. It's not whether you are and if you are, what does that mean? That means you have a spirit. You have the spirit, then you are a witness. And what did those witnesses go out and do? Actually, what do we go on to read in, in, in Acts? Well, they conquered Jerusalem. You know what they did? And then, and then they, they, they marched out, and they took Samaria. And then after that, they, they went to the four corners of the known world. Now, I say known world, and I'm going to leave a little mystery for you there. What does that mean? There is some debate, right? Did they make it to China? Did they make it to South America? Go and find out what that means. But that's what they did. They started in their hometown, and they worked their way out. Now, this concept is called the church militant, distinct from the church triumphant. The church militant is the earthly church engaged in Christian warfare against sin and death and the devil. The church triumphant is the church blessed now and eternally at rest with Christ in death. That's the triumphant church. They're already with him. The church militant is you. And think about what that word means, militant. Right? Now, does that mean NRA flags and AR-15s? It might. Maybe. But it might mean something else, right? right? It might not mean the Declaration of Independence. It might not mean, like, let's go and spread democracy with F-18s. That's generally what we think about. Right, let's, let's spread some democracy and freedom by bombing the hell out of people. Now, I, I, I'm 41 years old. I've been living in America for a while. We've been spreading that good news for some time now, and it's going really well. Right? I just saw this meme, and it's the CIA agent talking to some militant terrorist. And he says, the terrorist says, oh, well, I'm, I'm, not, I'm from that terrorist group that you started. And the CIA officer says, you'll have to be more specific. I was like, man, that's, it's like truth by meme. I can't even believe that that's where we're at, but that's where we're at. Now, okay, the church militant is you, mom, you, child, you, husband, you. Whether you work in a cubicle or you stand all day at the sink, you're the church militant. You have the Spirit. You are his witnesses. And you do it through having children and raising children. You do it through working. You do it through loving people. You do it through forgiving one another. You do it through confessing your sins one to another. You do it by showing random acts of kindness to people who it benefits you not at all. You do it by sending missionaries to foreign parts. You do it by giving your money to a a local church who's actually going to use it to do something for the kingdom of God. It, right? Does anyone know You guys know what first steps is here, Here's one for you First steps Anybody know what that is <laughs> My wife She looks nervous it, it's, it's right down the road here and, it, and it's the first place you go If you want to have an abortion first Or you get pregnant and you don't know what to do You go to first steps And first steps will help you Figure out what you're going to do and it's run by some very sweet Christian ladies right down the street here. And their windows were all smashed, and their place was, was wrecked earlier this week. Right? And, and you know, I, I never saw one clip of that on Facebook. But you know what I did see is some person named Amber Heard, who I don't even know who that is, testifying in some case I don't care about. Now I saw 5,000 clips of that. So do you think that we might be distracted from what's really going on, the war that's really happening in our own neighborhoods? in the neighborhood in which our actual church exists. There are witnesses, and there are witnesses. Calvin says it very clearly. Let every man, therefore, apply himself in his work, which he hath in hand. Let us fight stoutly under Christ's banner. Let us go forward manfully and courageously in our vocation, and God will give fruit in due time and tide. Whatever it is you're doing, you're a missionary. Whatever it is you're doing, you're a witness, So witness, testify right there to yourself, testify right there to your spouse, to your children, to your neighbors, testify at the local church, put it in order, testify as a church then to Christendom and put it in order, and so that Christendom can get back to the business of doing what it's supposed to be doing, which is putting the world in order. Why? Because our king is the king sitting on a throne on the highest peak in the highest heavens over the entire cosmos. So, then what happens? And then Jesus climbs on his little cloud like Mario, hits the button for the penthouse, and departs. No. No, something actually more striking than that. Acts chapter 1, verse 9, And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. It's very vague in English. Right? He, he's sealing what he just said, told them to do. I'm going to send the Spirit upon you. You're going to go out to... Right? To where? To Jerusalem and Samaria to the ends of the earth. That's what you're going to do. And if you have any doubt about who's talking to you the Shekinah glory is now going to show up and and ferry me away. And they stand there dazed and confused staring into the heavens trying to figure out what they just saw because as if all the other miracles weren't enough they're still capable of being stupefied by their God. Immediately after he gives this command The disciples are watching. He's taken up by the Shekinah glory. And this is a word that's extra biblical. It's not in the Bible. But it's based on this word, "sakan" to dwell. So the Shekinah glory is the dwelling of God with his people. And and there's a reason that it's a cloud. Because if we could actually see through the cloud and see what was on the other side of the cloud, our faces would melt off. And at least in this much, Indiana Jones uh, got it right. Exodus chapter 40, verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The cloud was there because the glory of the Lord was there. Luke chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. When the light in the cloud of the God's glory appears, it fills people with fear. It stuns them. John's gospel emphasizes the concept of glory and of dwelling. When the word became flesh, he dwelt among men who beheld his glory. John 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And as we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. The Spirit of God remained on Jesus, according to John one thirty two, and it would be with Jesus' followers forever, John 14.16, and this glory cloud is testifying to what? That guy who just told you what to do is not just a man. The glory of the Lord, the light of the Lord, comes down and envelops him and carries him away. Just in case you were getting a little used to having Jesus around, you forget a little bit who he is, uh, I wonder if that ever happens to anybody. What he does is he, right, he gives this command, and then he departs in an unbelievable way that leaves them still stunned. At the, how could they still be stunned by anything he's going to do? I have a hard time believing that. Like if he, if he did that joke where he takes his finger and takes his finger off and puts it back what he was really doing it, I'd be like, yeah, I mean, uh, at this point, I'm not kind of shocked by anything you do, bud. <laughs> like I feel like I'd be like, all right, what do you got? Uh, i kind of seen a lot already. But they stand there, and they are stunned. And they, they touched his wounds after he was alive. Right? They, ate, they saw a resurrected Jesus who could walk through walls eating fish. And you would be like, kind of, after that? Christ is the kind of glory of God. It is the dwelling. But, and, and, and this is how, what we have to, everywhere he goes, the light of God, the glory of God, the presence of God is there. And, and, and so now, right, he ascends into the heavens. And so now what? Now what are we going to do? Right? He was here with us, and now he's gone. And, that, and that's really, they want to know, they, they are worried about not having him there. And he said in John, it's better that I go away so that I can send the Spirit. And that's what we're going to talk about next week. Because the spirit that he sends is this glory, is this light, is this presence, and it dwells now in your hearts. And how can you be concerned about anything else? How are you worried about anything else? Why are we shocked when when this world, full of sin, full of sufferers, full of foolishness, right? Why are we shocked by it? We have now in ourselves this glory this Lord, this presence, so that we can go out and that we can conquer these things. Sin in your spouse, you can conquer it. Sin in your own heart, you can conquer it. Those little sinners running around biting your ankles, you can conquer them too. Right? The world, we're working on it like a wave. It's like a little wave, just a little crash here, crash there, and eventually what do you have? Right? You take a big boulder, you stick it on the edge of the ocean, you come back four generations later, is it just a big boulder still? No, there's a cave carved into it. I, I, I saw this when we were on the Oregon coast. There's caves and giant rocks. Why? Because this, just this little water came splashing up, one little generation at a time. It's like a little chunk. But part of this whole story is the fact that after the command, <laughs> after the miracle... It still takes angels to come and, tell. Right? it still takes messengers to come and get them going. Acts chapter 1, verse 10 and 11. And while they were gazing into heaven as he, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Suddenly, two angels appear, two witnesses, that's what you need, Deuteronomy 19.15, to interpret God's mighty act in Jesus' ascension. Their gentle rebuke to the sky-gazing disciples implies that in the interim, there is a task to be done, fulfillment of the missionary mandate that was just given to them. This is how quickly they forget. Their gentle rebuke to these sky-gazing disciples, the angels describe in simple terms what has happened. Jesus has been taken up into heaven. That's the important part, right? This is what we were waiting for and waiting for and waiting for. This is the part now where everything is going to change. You think everything up till now has changed. Wait seven days. Come back on Pentecost, baby, and I will show you a thing or two. They're calling them back from their their desire of a carnal presence of Christ, right? Because I've asked this question before. If you could have the Holy Spirit, which you cannot see, or Jesus, which you could see, who would you rather have? Well, I would take Jesus 100 times out of 100. And yet he himself says it's better that I go away so that I can send the Spirit because it's better for you. And so they're like, no, 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 don't go. Please come back. Please. I'm not a king. Why am I not a king? In heaven, Jesus is in a position of authority at the Father's right hand. Once he can pour out salvation blessings by his spirit, he directs and empowers the church's mission. As the apostles, that's what he's doing. He's sending them out not to be changed and to change this world. That's the point. Acts chapter 5, 5, sorry, verses 30 through 31. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. There is a whole world now that needs to know who this person was, what he did, where he is now, and what he's doing now. And I know that we would rather that when he came, right, when he descended, he would have just brought heaven with him. It just descends full-grown out of the sky. I, I'm with you that that would have been a lot easier for us. But that wouldn't have accomplished what he wanted to accomplish. You wouldn't be ultimately the right? What you're becoming is more important. This long, drawn-out process where there's all this death and sin and, and trouble, that what you're going to become at the end of that is better than if, it, if you just hit the penthouse button and then lowered the penthouse down to the earth, and we could just all go in the pool. <laughs> it's important that he took the flesh with him to heaven. It's not enough that he just wore right, a meat suit when he walked around on earth. He became a man, is a man, and will always be the God-man. He is sitting there now, and he has his flesh. He knows. He knows what you're thinking. He knows what you were tempted with. He knows what you succumbed to because he's on both sides of that coin. He, he was tempted in every way that you were tempted, and on the cross he endured every sin that you and everybody else is going to commit. He's like, I get what's going on right now. Here, let me, by my, the power of my spirit, in your heart change you. Now go forth and do likewise. And by that same spirit, we go into the world as the church militant, and we bring it all under his banner, all under his domain. This is what the prophet Isaiah had in mind when he talked about the Incarnation. He's going to spread peace. And what did we cover last week? Do you spread peace by simply saying peace, peace? Or do you spread peace by going out and fighting and winning? And if that's what he did, why is it that you are going to be given any other mission but that? Go, fight, win. That's, that's it. Right? And what happens in war? Well, sometimes when you're running and you're charging the enemy, you look to your right and you're like, where did Jim go? Because Jim's not there anymore. Well, Jim has fallen. Jim's no longer with us. Now, does the whole army stop and say, well, wait, this isn't supposed to happen now? No. You keep going. And you're like, well, I I would like to know a date when this ends, because I'm sick of losing gyms. No, just keep fighting. Keep pressing forward. Keep expanding the kingdom. Keep fighting sin in your house. Keep fighting sin in your neighborhood. Keep fighting sin in your church. And as the church, keep fighting it in the world. And what you will see is, is the answer to the prayer that you pray. Let your kingdom... Come on earth as it is in heaven. And we're like, yes, yes, penthouse button. Push it, push it, push it. And he's like, no, 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 go out and martyr yourselves. Do it again. Do it again. Do it again. Now, in the end, what kind of people, what kind of creatures, what kind of beings are those going to be? Would you actually have it any other way? And and this is what we have to understand. This This is the plan. And we're either for this plan or we're not. We're witnesses to this plan or we're not. And there are witnesses and there are witnesses. What I'm talking about, what what I have been talking about leading up to this sermon for weeks, is Christendom. That is your citizenship. That is your mission in your own home, in your neighborhood, in this church, and in the world. Christ has a plan, and it involves a great deal of you dying. (laughs) And I'm not going to apologize about that. And I, I know that, that you're suffering, and I know that it's painful, and I know that you would just like to hit that penthouse button. But what are you becoming? What are you becoming? Have you thought about that? Right? This is, let's think about the eschaton and what it, it, it's going to consist of. And that is what? D- does he lose or win? Does he lose you? Or does he gain you? Does he gain the world? Where are we headed? What are we becoming? That's the point. And you become that by the power of his Holy Spirit submitting to him. And that's the only way. You can't have the utopia. (laughs) You can't have heaven. You can't have perfection. You can't have the being without the becoming. This world can't have it without becoming. The process, that's the point. When you're at the kitchen sink, when you're in your cubicle, from the pulpit to our daily conversations, what we are doing is we are helping sufferers, and we're helping sinners. And what we're helping them become is something that looks like the Lord Jesus sitting on a throne in heaven with, it, right, with his flesh with him. Right? That's what we're becoming. Him enthroned on the highest mountain and the highest heavens. That is what you're becoming. And you can't get there without the be, right? You can't have the being without the becoming. And just like the disciples, that's what we want. Witness. You are witnesses. Why are you witnesses? Because the Lord Jesus promised it and the Lord Jesus commanded it. And, and, and to show you, he gave you his spirit. And so there, sitting to your left and right, are sinners and sufferers. There in the world are sinners and sufferers. There, are, there are, is a great deal to do, and what the world needs is not kings. It has one. What it needs is priests. What it needs is prophets. What it needs is martyrs. Go and testify to that. Go and testify to that. And that's how you become, ultimately, the thing that you really want to become, like him, with him, forever. Amen. Father, we thank you for the ministry of Luke. We thank you, Lord, for the book of Acts. We thank you for the Lord Jesus, his descending and his ascending, Lord, his incarnation and his ascension and everything in between. I pray, God, that as we go from here, that we would be mightily convicted in our flesh of our worldliness, Lord, of our desire to have the being without the becoming to have the reward, Lord, without the race, to have the victory without the warfare. I pray, God, that you would cleanse us, that you would show us that the spirit that you've given us is not a spirit of fear, that the Lord Jesus is not far off, that he is near at hand, and, Lord God, that we are empowered to become what you promised we would. We pray all these things in the name of your Son, and amen.